Good morning, and welcome to the Tuesday Morning Men's Bible Study at Park City's Presbyterian Church. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, Whether you're joining us right now in this moment, live stream, or you're watching later in the week, by design, the men's Bible study is not just about a speaker like me saying something to you, but it's about being in fellowship and in community as men around the Word of God. Now, of course, right now, that's a little bit different, and we're doing everything virtually. But hopefully, you have a table group. Now, of course, we don't have tables set up in this room. We're not in person. But you need to have a table group if you don't already. So if this is your first time with us, again, welcome. But email us. Let us know that you're here. Register online at pcpc.org men. We'll make sure that you get into a table group. And we'll make sure that you are part of a group that's either meeting virtually throughout the week or you're able to meet in person. Now, before we get started, I just want to mention a great opportunity of a lesser known ministry in our church that we want you to know about. And it's our men's integrity groups. Our men's integrity groups are seeking the full life in Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel to enable us as men to walk with integrity the whole person, especially the parts of us that we don't want anybody else to see. And so we have a couple of guys here this morning who are going to just share a little bit about what this ministry has meant in their own life. Y'all go ahead and come up. You guys just take a moment and introduce yourself, uh, where you're from, and when did you get involved in the ministry? Uh, Yeah, I'm Drew Stevenson, and I'm from here, Dallas, Texas, and I got involved with Tom some years ago. Um, but I uh, got involved with the ministry uh, probably about three or four months ago. That's great. Yeah, I'm Elliot Ferris. I'm from El Paso, Texas, and I got involved uh, after meeting Tom with um, the men's integrity groups about last November. Awesome. So, so Drew, tell me, what kept you from first reaching out? And what, what uh, made you eventually say, I, I got to find help? Yeah, so... Um, you know, a lot of us think that we have the right people in our lives to help us do battle with this problem. Um, but uh, the truth was, I really didn't. Um, and until I surrounded myself with a group of men who really understood what it meant to struggle with this uh, and how to overcome that, um, I wasn't able to achieve mastery over it. So, yeah. yeah. And when you say this, would you mm-hmm. be so bold to say what the this is? Yeah, just looking at porn, um, you know, uh, just sexual problems of all types, but mainly it was just looking at porn. I just could not defeat that. Yeah. And you couldn't do it on your own. Couldn't do it on my own. Nope. Was there something in you that made you think, I just, I need to keep trying on my own? And that made you not want to? Yeah, I think uh, a general just love for the sin and not really wanting to put it to bed um, is probably the first place you're at. But I think second of all, just not having the right people in your life to do this battle with. Yeah. Thank you, Drew, for your honesty. Thank you for your candor. Now, maybe another question that I'm sure a a lot of guys would have that might keep someone from joining a group like this and talking about their sexual struggles with other men is, what's it going to be like? You know, what what am I getting myself into? Is this going to be weird? Is this going to be hokey? So what was just that first night for you? Yeah, so um, that's a common problem with this. It's just um, uncharted waters for a lot of people. They've never done this. It's very scary. Um, so, uh, the first night I went to sexual sanity, uh, within about 10 minutes, I realized I was in the presence of good, loving men who understood mm-hmm. my problem. Um, and we all had that commonality where we were going to do battle together. And I think the level 
of comfort that anyone would feel um, in this environment is going to be pretty high pretty quickly. Yeah, so, that's really good. Yeah. yeah, it's really good to hear because I, I, I imagine you're pretty fearful yeah. going into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. And, and a lot of people have that same issue. But uh, like I said, you, you do feel the love and the understanding in the room pretty, pretty quickly. It comes, yeah, pretty soon. Thanks, Drew. Yeah. Elliot, for you, um, how has the Sexual Sanity Group uh, experience helped you in your own victory over sexual sin? Yeah, well, the biggest thing is um, the material is, is great. And one of the big emphasis is that the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. And yeah. so every week you show up to meeting, having just read a bunch of incredible material from the book we go through, and then confess your sins to brothers and hear them say, we love you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's powerful to experience the, the love of Jesus through other believers in an intimate relationship uh, with him as well. Yeah. Well, the statistics are kind of hard to pin down. But as men, I think we can assume that there's quite a few men right now who are watching this, maybe are a bit blindsided this morning, thought they were getting themselves into a, a study on the parables, and, and here we're talking about sexual sin and how we see the gospel give us victory over it. But Elliot, what would you say to a guy out there right now who's watching this, who this is their struggle, and they're not sure where to find help, and they're not even sure if they want to find help in this way, that this seems like a huge step, that they're just not sure they're, they're ready to take? What would you say to them? Well, I mean, you're not alone, um, and everybody's struggle is different. For me, I came to the groups thinking I didn't really have a problem, um, but I was really white-knuckling it, and um, it, I wasn't walking in freedom. And so if you've never been a part of a group like this where you can confess your sins to people on a regular basis, um, you know, it, it's an unbelievable feeling to bring light into dark places in your life. And so you're not alone. There's a lot of people who have shared the same struggle and want to love you and, and share the love of Christ with you. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. One more question. Okay. How has the sexual sanity group taught you about Jesus? Wow. Um, you want to take that one first? It's good. Um, Way to go. Yeah, <laughs> this is hot. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people, I, 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 it's almost like we think we're too bad. Um, and my, well, my problem is, is worse than other people. And that's, that's not true. And, um, it has taught me that nobody is too bad yeah. for Jesus. That's awesome. Um, and you know, I guess in a, in a more real, tangible way, I've seen that through these groups. That's awesome. Thank you, Elliot. Mm. Can you, you add yeah, to that, Drew? Yeah, you don't have so to. No, no, the, um, yeah, so I think just sitting in the shame. Um, I think when people masturbate to porn, there's, there's a lot of shame that comes along with that. And we hear all throughout our Christian walks that, you know, we don't need to sit in that shame because Jesus has overcome that for us. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a slip during the middle of the sexual sanity course, like I looked at porn, uh, and it was the first time that I ever didn't sit in the shame and dwell, uh, and I was able to just look at the cross and move forward um, and point towards something better. So it's really, in a way, the first time I ever achieved, like, true repentance 
from looking at porn, and that felt really great. And um, it helped me keep my eyes on Jesus uh, instead of dwelling on my own problems and me trying to go back and fix it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Which was really great. That is, that's awesome, guys. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty this morning. Mm. Thank you for your boldness. It takes a lot to talk about this in a small group, let alone to be in front of, well, a camera. Mm. And who knows how many people who are watching this and will watch this. So we cannot thank you enough. And thank you for waking up early. Mm. I hope Tom feeds you well after <laughs> this as payment. But can I pray for you guys and pray for the work of the men's integrity groups here at PCPC? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you. Um, thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you that what we believe and hold dear in the gospel is not just a thought or a philosophy or a platitude, but it is the power of the gospel. It is um, the death and resurrection of Jesus that these guys have just testified to gives us freedom from sin. And so I pray for each of them. I pray for their walks with Christ. I pray as they continue to walk in freedom from sexual sin that um, you would continually point them to Jesus. So be with Elliot, be with Drew, grow them in grace and grow them in the likeness of your son. And we pray for these men's integrity groups. We pray for, as they kick off again, Lord willing, a few more groups uh, in March. We pray, Lord, that um, you would stir in the hearts of our men and men who are connected to our church in some way that if there's any out there that want to find freedom from sin and find uh, the full life of abiding in Jesus, Lord, that you would stir in their hearts uh, even now and give them the boldness to bring what is in the dark into the light of Christ and find victory. So we praise you, God, this morning, and we praise you for your word as we dive in. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Amen. Appreciate it. Thanks. So again, we're talking about men's integrity groups and just want to um, let you know about a couple offerings that uh, we, we have for you. Uh, one we just talked about is a sexual sanity study. It's a 15-week intensive. We're going to be starting, hopefully, uh, three more groups the first week of March. We also have what we're calling SLAM, Spiritual Life of a Man. That's an open group, meets all the time on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. If you want to find more about these groups, if you want to come and register, there's a QR code right here. And believe it or not, if you're watching this on your screen, whether it's a TV or a laptop, hold your phone up to it. You can scan this QR code. It'll take you right to the page. Or, of course, you can go to pcpc.org men. Well, we are working our way for just now joining uh, with us. This is week two of our study on the parables, and we're calling it the King's Stories. Every parable is a story that Jesus intentionally told to help us to see more of the kingdom of God and what it means for us as his people, and particularly for us as we go through the study together as men. This morning we're talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and it could not be a more appropriate parable with what we just talked about. And so I want to begin by reading the parable for us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, as we get into it, I think we need to talk a little bit about self-righteousness. And if you've been around the church at all, you've probably heard this word. The idea, if you think about just the word itself, it's hyphenated. It's that we find our righteousness, our goodness, our sense of morality in our self. And that makes us puffed up. It makes us prideful. It makes us arrogant. And as we're going to talk about this coming Sunday on Sunday morning, it makes us hypocrites. Because none of us can be righteous in and of ourselves. A great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said it this way, and I think it's really helpful to kind of frame our thinking around what it means to truly be self-righteous. Spurgeon said, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Now, there's a couple things I want you to notice this morning about what Spurgeon says. The first is this. He says the greatest enemy to the human soul is the self-righteous spirit. Now, I want you to really think about that because I believe it's true. The greatest enemy to the human soul is the self-righteous spirit. Now, we have lots of enemies to our souls. We just talked about one, right? Sexual sin, and as men... That is a great enemy that we all face. But I think Spurgeon is right that even as horrendous as that kind of sin can be for us, it's not the greatest. The greatest is a self-righteous spirit that would cause us to continue living in sexual sin, not come out of hiding because we want to be self-righteous. You see, it's our self-righteousness that magnifies every sin that you and I commit. It makes us to continually push away from the gospel, away from Jesus, and towards ourselves. That's the second thing I want you to notice about what Spurgeon says. The self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And so this morning, as we get into this parable, here's my question for you. Who do you look to for your salvation? Honestly, who are you looking to? Now, don't be too quick to answer that. Because if you've grown up in a Christian environment, you've been trained to say, well, look to Jesus. But do you really look to Jesus for your salvation? Or are you looking to yourself? To be self-righteous is to trust in yourself. And so this morning, I really have one overarching question that frames all the questions that we will discuss together. Who do you really trust? Do you only trust yourself? Or do you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, for your freedom from sin, and from victory over sin and death? 
Now, to get our bearings with this parable, we got to do, as we talked about last week, some serious imaginative work. And so we need to imagine this scene that Jesus is telling in the parable. In verse 10, I want you to go ahead and look. He says, two men went up to a temple to pray. So I, I want you to do some serious imaginative work. I want you to imagine a temple. Now, what we're going to have to do in order to imagine this scene for ourselves is we're going to have to modernize it, right? Jesus told this parable in a particular context where this, everything that he's about to talk about was very common to them. It was something that they had access to in their daily life. He, he wasn't asking them to go back in history and imagine what things were like. He was saying, imagine how things are today. So we have to do the same thing. So maybe think about it this way. Two men went up to a church to pray. Uh, for you, if Park City's Presbyterian Church is your church home, I want you right now to imagine our sanctuary and imagine two men coming up to the sanctuary to pray. These two men were told, verse 10, one is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Now, again, if you've grown up in a Christian environment, you automatically have some thoughts that have been hardwired into your thinking about what a Pharisee is and what a tax collector is. If you've grown up in a Christian environment, you've been told that a Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrite, a self-righteous. These were the religious people who were elite. They were better than everybody else. That's what you've been told. And you've been told that tax collectors were terrible. They were people that robbed. They were supposed to collect taxes, but they would take more for themselves, and so they were sinners. But I want you to know that that is not necessarily how Jesus' first hearers heard this parable. You see, we have 2,000 years of biblical interpretation and study that shapes what a Pharisee is to us. But for them, when they heard this parable, for them, a Pharisee was just a religious person, a person they would look up to, a person that seemed like they had it all together. They were a good, God-fearing person. And yes, a tax collector wasn't just an idea. They knew these guys. They had names. They couldn't stand them. They represented people who took from them and their families. They hated them. And so we kind of have to put this in our own context. In fact, one of the commentaries I read preparing for this lesson didn't call it a Pharisee, called it a Presbyterian. I think that's pretty accurate. Not that we would single Presbyterians out, but if you are a Presbyterian this morning, you think about a Pharisee, well, it's just one of us. Or if you're Baptist or Methodist or whatever your denominational affiliation is, maybe we just put good Christian there that a Pharisee was just a good Christian, a Presbyterian, like you, like me. And a tax collector was a sinner, not just any kind of sinner, but a known sinner in the community that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. That is now doing some serious imaginative work. These are the two men that Jesus talks about in this parable. And as we look at this parable, what I want us to see is that it's hard to know whether or not you're self-righteous. It's hard to be honest and really recognize if you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in Jesus. And so Jesus tells this parable to help us imagine 
what self-righteousness looks like and what it looks like to truly trust in Jesus Christ. So I want to look at this in three ways. The first is this, self-righteousness looks like trusting in how you are seen. If you want to know what self-righteousness is and whether or not you are self-righteous, here's what it looks like. It looks like trusting in how you are seen. I want you to look at verse 11. Jesus continues the parable. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. So here's the scene. Here's the sanctuary. This good Presbyterian, this Christian comes in. He's, he knows his Bible. Uh, he prays regularly throughout the week at certain specific times. And in those days, as they prayed, they prayed standing. This was a normal way that they practiced their religious life. They came into the sanctuary, they would stand, and they would pray before God, offering their prayers. He's doing this out of religious devotion. Yes, you might say that he's a bit ritualistic. Yes, you might say that some aspect of his uh, godly life is actually cold. It's, it's rigid. But what I want you to see is he's doing this out of what he knows to be best in his heart. This is why it's so hard to really know if you have a self-righteous spirit or not. He's doing it, I believe, with good intentions. This is how he prays. Or before we get to that, Matthew 6, 5, Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount the danger of how we pray to God. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand again, stand and pray in the synagogues, just like this Pharisee, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. You, you wonder in the back of this Pharisee's mind as he's going to the sanctuary to pray, to stand there at the front and do what he's always done, you wonder how much is he doing that for himself? And how much is he doing that, as Jesus says, to be seen by others? How much of your Christian life, if you're a Christian this morning, are you doing because you love Jesus? And how much are you doing because you want to be well thought of? You want others to see you and think, man, that guy has it all together. That's somebody I can look up to. That's a, that's a good Christian man. That's a good Presbyterian. That's a good Pharisee. This is the danger of how we approach God, the danger of when we come to pray. Because the truth is, is when we pray, it's really us coming into the throne room of grace. Us calling God Father only because of the death of the Son. Because the Son died in your place, you now are sons and you can approach Him as sons. That is an intimate, vertical relationship. And yet how often when we pray are we worried about what's going on horizontally and around us? How much of your life is lived managing your image? How much does the way that you are seen impact and influence the things that you do and the choices that you make? Self-righteousness looks like trusting in how you are seen 
by others. So this Pharisee, he goes to the church, he goes to the sanctuary, he stands and prays so he can be seen by others. Thomas Merton, pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. I love how simple and pointed that statement is. When we are prideful, that makes us worried about what other people think. That makes us artificial. It makes us false. But when we are humble, it's our humility that makes us real, makes us honest, it makes us vulnerable. Now, what about the tax collector? What about the tax collector? Well, the tax collector, we're told, as he comes in to the sanctuary, to the synagogue, to the temple, he's standing far off. Not where others can see him, but I want you to imagine again our sanctuary. Imagine a place of worship, a church, and imagine a man standing towards the front and he's praying just like he always does. That's the Pharisee. And then imagine there's a man who's just walked in and maybe he comes and he's just standing in the back. He can't even bring himself to take another step forward into the sanctuary because he feels like it's too much of a holy place. As he walks in, he wonders, do I belong here? That maybe this was a bad idea. I, I shouldn't even come. He's so aware of his sin that he can't even manage to take one step further. This is the tax collector. He's standing far off, standing in the back of the sanctuary. Luke, in the gospel, this is Luke 18 that we're reading this morning. In the very next chapter, Jesus gives us another example of what this kind of desperation looks like. It's a tax collector, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Now, if you know the story of Zacchaeus, you know that he was a wee little man. And this wee little man, Zacchaeus, was a tax collector. He was rich. He was known throughout the region for taking too much for himself. He was hated for it, and yet he wanted so badly to see Jesus. He was willing to do anything, including climbing up into a sycamore tree. Maybe you know the song. We see this picture. The parable actually lived out. A man who knew his sin and who was willing to do anything even climb up into a sycamore tree just to see more of Jesus. That's what's going on with this tax collector. He's a man who really, you would think, has no business being in a church, and yet he's the exact kind of person who belongs in a church, a sinner who knows his sin. And so he comes in to the sanctuary, he comes into the temple to pray, and he's standing far off. How much of your life has lived in such a way that you're worried about what others think of you? Would you be too worried about how you are seen to climb a tree in order to see more of Jesus? That's what we see in Zacchaeus. He's willing to do anything. He doesn't care what other people think. He's already hated. So he's willing to climb a tree, a grown man climbing a tree to get a better glimpse. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to overcome? How much do you manage how other people see you? And that causes you to not be seen by Jesus. The one who already sees you, 
the one who knows you, the one who is calling you by name. The second thing I want us to see, what does self-righteousness look like? Self-righteousness looks like trusting in how you compare. So if you want to know if you're self-righteous this morning, maybe you care a lot about how other people see you, or maybe you're comparing yourself to other people. You are comparing your sins to the sins of others. This is what we see in the Pharisee, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You have to love this prayer. In some ways, you can't fault him for being honest, because I think this is actually revealing what is really in his heart. This Pharisee, I believe, is genuinely thanking God that he's not like these other people who are terrible in his eyes. The problem is he doesn't see that he is just as bad as they are. No, he's comparing himself. So he's saying, look, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other. Look, maybe I've, I've sinned, but my sin's not as bad as these extortioners, as the unjust, as these adulterers. And then notice what he says at the end of his prayer. If he had any doubt now at this point that he was thinking about what other people saw in him, you need to be noticed that he now is fully aware that he's not alone in this temple praying. He knows that there is a man. Even though he's standing far off, he knows he is there. He even points him out in his prayer. He says, God, thank you for not making me like this tax collector. It's not just this general idea of tax collectors. No, the Pharisee is genuinely thanking God that he's not like this other guy who's praying in the sanctuary with him. When we compare ourselves to others, we always do it in a way that builds us up. We have a way of comparing the best parts of us to the worst parts in other people. We do that to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. That's what's morality or moralism. Moralism is finding your own sense of morality by comparing yourself to other people. And it's almost like a race, right? That if you can just somehow be better than the next guy, then maybe God would smile on you and you would have favor. Now, when I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, but how often do we live that way? Think, look, I know that I'm not perfect, but look, I'm not as bad as these other people. And surely God would love me more because I'm not as bad. That's moralism. It's not the gospel. And that's not what it means to trust in Jesus. It's what it looks like to trust in yourself, to be self-righteous. There's a great book, one of my favorites, called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And I love how he says this. He says, let us never measure our religion by that of others and think we are doing enough if we've gone beyond our neighbors. If you know what self-righteousness is, it's, it's moralism. It's thinking that your life, your religious life, is, is just needs to be better than the next guy. That's what it was like for this Pharisee, but that is not trusting in Jesus. It's trusting in yourself. The tax collector, of course, for him, it was different. 
The tax collector, notice what it says, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast. I want you to imagine, again, two men, kind of polar opposites. One man standing towards the front, literally genuinely out of his heart and honesty, praying that he's not like this other guy who's so bad. And meanwhile, this guy is so bad is standing in the back and he can't even lift his eyes to heaven because he is so convicted by his sin. He's so convicted that he beat his breast. It's an image of mourning, of grieving. The tax collector is genuinely grieved over his sin. I wonder when was the last time you were truly grieved over your sin? Do you want to know the only way that we can truly be grieved over our sin? Is when we stop comparing our morality to other people and we start comparing our morality to the holiness of God. You see, when God's holiness becomes our standard, then we are grieved. Just like Isaiah was in Isaiah chapter 6. When we truly are confronted with the holiness of God, we confront the fact that we are not. When we compare ourselves to God alone, we realize that we have no business being in his presence except by his grace. So we should be grieved. We should be convicted over our sin. But as we end, what I want you to know is that's different than shame. That's different than shame. Joel 2, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Shame says, weep and mourn and continue trusting in yourself. Shame says, weep and mourn over your sin. And guess what? You are so bad. You do not and cannot be loved by God. Shame says, weep and fast and mourn and stay in the darkness. Hide from others and hide from God. But the gospel says, weep and mourn and fast and return to me with all your heart. The gospel says, be grieved over your sin and come out of shame, come out of hiding and come to the light of grace in Jesus Christ. Return to the Lord. Lastly, what does self-righteousness look like? Trust, righteousness, self-righteousness looks like trusting in how you are seen by others. Self-righteousness looks like trusting in how you can compare to others rather than comparing yourself to the holiness of God. Lastly, what does self-righteousness look like? Jesus tells this parable to give us an image to help us understand that self-righteousness looks like trusting in what you can do. This is the Pharisee, verse 12. The Pharisee continues his prayer, and this is what he says. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I can get. This Pharisee is giving Jesus, giving God his spiritual resume of all the things that he has done for God that makes him deserving to be in his presence. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. Apostle Paul, the book of Philippians chapter three, verse four says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what is your spiritual resume? Have you ever thought about that? 
you ever thought about all the things that you have done for God, and, and maybe you've never written them down, and maybe you don't actually think about this concretely, but I wonder how much of a, your Christian life is lived with this in the back of your mind. Paul says, look, if you have reason to, to boast in your spiritual resume, I have more. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, whatever I have done, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. But he goes on, verse eight, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For my sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If there is a place in the Bible that has a curse word from Paul, it's right here. What is the thing that makes Paul want to curse? It's this word rubbish. It means crap. Here's Paul, and he's saying, look, your list of things that you have done for God, it's crap. It's rubbish. It's nothing compared to what God has done for you. Self-righteousness looks like trusting in what you can do for God rather than trusting in what God has done for you. God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross and to rise again, that whoever believes in him would have life, would have victory over sin and death. This is what God has done for you. There is nothing that you can do for him to ever, ever earn that. It's crap. And deep down, I think we know it. The tax collector, again, he's standing far off, he can't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his press, and this is his prayer. Think of all the things that the Pharisees just prayed. God, thank you that I'm not like these other people. Thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector. God, thank you that I've done all these things for you, that I'm deserving to be in your presence. Think of all the things that the Pharisees just prayed, and this is the tax collector's prayer. One sentence. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Think about the genuineness, the honesty, and the desperation of that prayer. It's a model prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this morning, here's my question for you. Are you a sinner? Which... Man, are you more like? Because after all, that's what Jesus wants us to do. He's giving us this image, this scene of, of two men who've gone into a church to pray. One of them is the kind of man we'd look up to spiritually, a, a good Christian man, and yet he is trusting in himself. He's self-righteous. And the, the other man is a man that you and I would ordinarily hate. And yet it's this man, Jesus says, that goes home justified. It's this man who has the model prayer. It's this man who recognizes his sin and out of desperation comes to the throne of grace and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Who do you trust? Who do you really trust? Do you trust in how you're seen by others? Do you trust in how you can compare to what other people have done? Do you trust in what you have done for the cause of Christ? Or have you trusted alone in Jesus for your salvation? And if you have, are you now living a life that daily prays a prayer of trust, not in yourself, but in Christ alone, a prayer that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, by his grace, hears your prayers this morning, brothers. He sees you for who you really are. He sees right through all of it, right through your spiritual resume, right through your comparison to others, right how you manage your image. He sees through all of it and he sees you for who you are. He sees your sin. And even in all of that, he says, I love you, son. Weep over your sin and return to me. And I will have mercy for you, mercies that are new, every single morning. May we live lives that live out this prayer, that God would be merciful to us, sinners who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the parables and thank you for the way that they cause us to imagine the kingdom. They cause us to imagine the gospel and they cause us to really imagine what it would be like to live in that kingdom. We recognize this morning as we imagine these things, we, just like David was when, when Nathan came to him, we're, we're convicted that especially a parable like this, we, we're beginning to see not just what you're asking us to see in the kingdom and in the gospel, but we're beginning to see ourselves and who we really are. And so I pray that you would meet us in this moment with grace. Be with us as we now discuss these things in our table groups. And would you help us to see that there is great victory in the gospel? That if any of us need to go further with one of our men's integrity groups, would you let that be part of our conversations as well? Lord, would you always in all these things, whether it's a Bible study on the parables or it's a men's integrity group or it's just a conversation that we're having with another brother in Christ, would you always point us to Jesus? Help us to trust in him alone and never ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us this morning. We'll see you next week. God bless you.